Today's episode is sponsored by Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. You just post, screen, and interview all on Indeed. And you can get started right now with a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. The offer is valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions do apply. Well, commodity prices continue their ascent, as do consumer prices in general. And in fact, consumers are now waiting longer and longer to receive the shipments of their imported merchandise. More and more companies keep coming out and announcing uh, impending price increases due to rising production and raw material costs. Look at what happened with bond yields today. Uh, spiked up a bit. In fact, the chart looks like we may be getting ready for another leg up in long-term interest rates and down in bond prices. We'll see if that takes the U.S. stock market down for another correction. But what I'm more interested in is Jerome Powell's press conference following the FOMC statement that we're going to get tomorrow where Powell is again going to have to say with a straight face that there is no inflation and that what we're witnessing is just transitory. And of course, most people in the mainstream seem to believe the Fed. The only other person other than myself, really, that I've heard challenging the Fed and and not buying into this nonsense is Jeff Gunlock. In fact, I was listening to an interview that he did with BNN Bloomberg. In fact, just about an hour or two before I began recording this podcast, and he basically made many of the same points. In fact, maybe all of the same points that I've been making on my podcast and during my interviews about the fact that we don't really have a recovery, that our productive capacity isn't what's increasing. It's just Fed money printing that the Fed is just printing all this money, we're spending it, the trade deficits are skyrocketing, the dollar's going to tank, he's been buying foreign stocks because he wants to protect himself or profit from a weak dollar, Uh, and basically challenging the Fed in the same way I've been by saying, how can the Fed possibly know that inflation is transitory? At best, they're just making a guess. But I'm a little bit more suspicious. I don't think they're just guessing. I think they're afraid to say that it's not transitory. So they are specifically contending that what we're seeing is transitory, even though they have no clue uh, that that's the case. And they're not actually making a guess. They're just expressing wishful thinking or they're trying to confuse the markets or diffuse any type of concern that the market might have over higher inflation because the Fed is afraid of those concerns influencing behavior, which is exactly what they did with the subprime crisis. That's why Ben Bernanke reassured everybody that there was nothing to worry about, that subprime was contained, not that the Fed actually believed the problem was contained, as Ben Bernanke later admitted to uh, during an interview, which I've talked about on this podcast, Ben Bernanke was worried if he let the cat out of the bag and let people know how big this problem might be, 
that that warning might actually precipitate the type of collapse maybe he was hoping to avoid. And I think the same thing is happening now with the Fed. They are worried about an inflation problem, but what they're more worried about is alerting the public to the problem because the Fed is very much about expectations and confidence. And so they believe that if people think inflation is coming, they will react to those fears by rising prices or demanding higher wages. And so the Fed doesn't want to set this, this spiral in motion by you know getting the ball rolling. So instead, the Fed is simply, oh, don't worry about it. Nothing to worry about. You don't have to raise your prices because it's transitory. You don't need higher wages. Don't worry about it. I think they did the same thing with subprime. They were worried that if they telegraphed the extent of the problem, that lenders would cut back on their loans, anticipating the losses that might spread from subprime. Now, the reality is, had lenders been more concerned about subprime earlier, right? had the Fed not reassured everybody that there was nothing to worry about, when the crisis hit, they would not have been as blindsided and they may have been better prepared. But because the Fed lulled everybody into a false sense of confidence, they were more vulnerable when the problem that they didn't expect blew up in their faces. That's exactly what I expect to happen from inflation when a lot of people end up finding out too late that what they were experiencing was not transitory, but the beginning of much higher and protracted inflation. What I've been saying is the only thing that's transitory is the fact that we're transitioning from low inflation to high inflation. And in fact, Gunlock didn't make that particular point, but he did use the exact analogy that I have been using with respect to subprime. During this interview, Ben Bernanke reminded the, the reporter, hey, it was the Federal Reserve that said we didn't have to worry about the subprime market. The Fed told us that subprime was contained. And now the same Federal Reserve is telling us not to worry about inflation because it's transitory. So other than myself, he is the only person I have heard to make this comparison to the mistake that the Fed made about subprime to the mistake that they're now making about inflation. In fact, I reiterated that analogy again earlier this morning when for the first time I appeared on the Ben Shapiro podcast and it was taped. So I think it's going to be in the podcast that is released later today if it's not already out. Uh, But I was really a thrill to be on the Ben Shapiro show because I actually listened to that show. I mean, I don't listen to it on a daily basis, but I really like to hear his perspective. So if there's something that's kind of controversial or interesting, I can generally tune in uh, to his podcast and and get a very good perspective. In many cases, uh, we think alike on a lot of things. And so this was the first opportunity I actually had uh, to to be on, on his program. And, you know, again, there are not too many Jews uh, who are uh, free market oriented, Republicans, conservatives. I mean, Ben and I are in a minority in that perspective because there is a lot of pressure within the Jewish community uh, to be to be left wing, to be liberal. I mean, the vast majority of Jews are extremely liberal politically in the way they vote and the way they think. So it's nice to see a young kid uh, growing up in that environment who's, you know, a more religious, uh, uh, more practicing Jew than I am, but who can share uh, this type of uh, 
political philosophy and economic thought. So hopefully this will be the first of many appearances on his podcast because he really has a large audience that I would like to reach out to and focus more on the economic issues, on the Fed and money printing. Uh, I don't need to you know, focus on the social issues because he already does a great job of doing that, but kind of bringing the perspective on the Fed and the problems that they're creating I think can go a long way to helping to move that that audience further into the direction that they're already headed. But in any event, I will have a lot more to say about the inflation that the Fed is oblivious to and why nobody should pay any attention to what they say when it comes to inflation. And instead, you should listen to people like me because back in 2005, 2006, when Ben Bernanke was reassuring everybody that there was nothing to worry about with subprime. At that time, I was going on all of these television networks that have since banned me, and I was saying, don't listen to Ben Bernanke. He's wrong. The problem isn't contained. Uh, This is just getting started. I kept saying that subprime is simply the tip of a huge iceberg. It's the weakest link in a chain, but the entire chain is going to fall apart. And I was telling people, it's not even about the rest of the market catching the disease that's in subprime. I said, the whole market is already sick. It's just that where the symptoms are obvious first are in the sickest part of the market. But you're going to start to see the symptoms eventually throughout the rest of the real estate market. And I ended up being 100% right on that. And Ben Bernanke and the Fed was 100% wrong. Although again, they may not have been wrong. They may just have been lying as Ben Bernanke uh, later admitted. But now the same thing is happening. You've got the Fed saying that there's nothing to worry about. Inflation is transitory. And you got me and maybe a few other people uh, saying it's not, that the Fed is not being honest or they're just wrong. I'm just not saying it on CNBC or Bloomberg or CNN the way I was back then. I'm mainly saying it on my podcasts. And I'll talk a lot more about it on my next podcast when I have an opportunity to actually comment on what Jerome Powell says and doesn't say during his press conference. But in the meantime, I want to start talking about the American Families Plan, which is phase two, I guess, of the new stimulus plan. Phase one is infrastructure, right? Of course, a lot of that infrastructure is bogus because it's human infrastructure, right? Which which isn't infrastructure at all. I talked about that already. That's just welfare repackaged as infrastructure to make it more appealing so that policymakers can say, hey, we voted for all this infrastructure. And when the public hears about infrastructure, oh, they think, great, they're going to fill the potholes. Uh, the roads are going to be better. The bridges are going to be better. They're not thinking human infrastructure, which basically is welfare wrapped up in a prettier package. But The second phase, this American Families Plan, again, is a giant new welfare package. It's very reminiscent of Lyndon Baines Johnson. This is um, the Great Society type programs. We're coming up with these new welfare benefits that we now want to ingrain into law as some type of entitlement. The price tag for the American Families Plan is expected to be something like one and a half to 1.8 trillion dollars, right? So this is a big plan, right? I mean, a trillion here, a trillion there, pretty soon you're talking about real money, right? So this plan is going to have all sorts of goodies for the voters. One of them is 
free community college, right? So everybody in America can go to college for free, right? So it's not just K through 12 that's free. You can go to advanced education in a community college and that's going to be free. Oh, and by the way, they want to make pre-K also universal and free. So they don't just want to extend beyond 12th grade and make that free. They want to get kids started in preschool before they even get into kindergarten. So we already have free K through 12. Now we're going to make it free uh, nursery school, right? Pre-K, pre-pre-K, and it's going to be free to go to college, right? What a complete waste of money. Because remember, before the government really started targeting all this money to make sure that every single American graduated high school, regardless of whether or not they were competent, even if they were illiterate and couldn't even do basic math, well, at least they had a high school diploma. Well, what the government succeeded in doing is destroying the value of a high school diploma. And a lot of kids who might otherwise have used their time productively learning a trade so that they would actually be able to earn a living, instead they wasted their time in school. And of course, since you forced the schools to teach to the lowest common denominator, you had a lot of kids in school who were taking up a lot of time uh, in the classroom because they really didn't want to be there and they really shouldn't have been there. Basically, it dumbs down the whole curriculum. And so the people that really would have benefited from their, their time, well, those benefits were watered down by the fact that so many people who shouldn't have been there were there anyway. So the government really destroyed the value and the quality of the typical K through 12 education, which is why if you look at the scores of American kids and you compare them to uh, kids all around the world, Americans continually rank very low when compared to other nations. And of course, we rank very low when compared to ourselves. I mean, if you ever look at some of these exams that people used to take maybe to graduate sixth grade uh, 100 years ago, there's no way the average high school graduate could even come close uh, to competing maybe with a sixth grader, uh, you know, 100 years earlier. But now they want to make it even worse and they want to, you know, offer even more free school to drive up the cost of these government schools even more. And of course, drive up the cost of of college, because how much do you think these free colleges are going to end up costing taxpayers? Because whenever the government provides something for free, it's always far more expensive than what the free market provides for a price. Because when people have to pay a price, they shop around. There's competition. And when private sector businesses are trying to attract consumers, well, they're cognizant that their customers have a choice and they have to uh, keep their prices down. Now, yes, that is not working today in higher education so much because the government is subsidizing the loans. But it's the government involvement in education that is preventing the free market from holding costs down. But if you get a situation where the government actually owns and operates the college and then offers the tuition completely for free, now you're going to have even less market forces. In fact, you're going to have no market forces. It's going to be all government. And so these free colleges are probably going to cost, on average, more per pupil 
then it may cost the private sector to send someone to Harvard or Yale, except they're not going to get a Harvard or Yale quality education. They're going to get nothing. They're going to get a bunch of nonsense. Although I would even question the quality of the education now uh, that's being sold by these Ivy League colleges, uh, you know, given uh, what they're now teaching and how low the bars are now being dropped so they can uh, fill their quotas and have the diverse campuses that they are looking at. In fact, I just looked at the entering freshman class into Harvard University, and I think it's now down to just 40% white. <laughs> you know, and you know, uh, whites are 60% of the population, but they're now only 40% of the people who end up getting admitted uh, to Harvard. So clearly they are doing whatever they can to have a far more diverse student body. And I think they're probably sacrificing the underlying quality in order to get diversity. And now, of course, if they're doing that, uh, they're likely to have to dumb down the curriculum to make sure that the people who probably shouldn't have been admitted uh, don't drop out. But I digress because, I again, I, I, I really want to keep politics out of these podcasts. So, um, so that's as far as I'm going to take it. But all of this is going to cost a fortune uh, as far as increasing the number of years in which Americans will stay in school at the taxpayer expense. And of course, you know, once you make college free, at least, you know, when you have to pay for college or even to the extent that you have to borrow money that you think you may have to repay, people at least kind of weigh the cost benefits. I mean, should I go to college? Is it worth the money? Uh, yeah, I can borrow some money, but you know, do I really want to be stuck with these loans? But the minute you make college completely free, well, then what the hell? You might as well go. I mean, it doesn't cost anything. And if everybody else is going, I mean, shit, my high school degree is worth absolutely nothing now because everybody else is getting these college degrees. So what hope do I have of getting a job if all I have is a high school degree and it's not going to cost me anything? So how could I turn down free college? So just even more people are going to end up wasting their time getting worthless degrees because those worthless degrees are free, then are going to go and get those worthless degrees if they actually had to pay for them. In business, the key to success is finding your edge and then leveraging it. Well, if you're hiring, that edge is Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. That's post, screen, and interview. And you can do it all on Indeed. You can get a quality short list of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description. And you get it faster. And you only pay for the candidates that meet your must-have qualifications. And they schedule and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. Indeed makes connecting with and hiring the right people fast and easy. With tools like Instant Match. Instant Match gives you quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description specifically. And you can include a skills test that on average reduces hiring time by 27%. And you can choose from more than 130 skills tests that are there. Or if you want, you can make up your own and include all of your must-have requirements so that you only end up paying for the applicants that meet those requirements. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined. So if you're hiring, you need Indeed. And you can get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. You get $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. This offer is valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. 
Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Another aspect of this boondoggle in this new uh, Great Society bill is mandated paid family and medical leave. Now, this is going to be one of the biggest boondoggles out there. It will be ripe with fraud and abuse. I mean, if you thought the PPP had a lot of fraud and abuse, if you thought these extended unemployment benefits had a lot of fraud and abuse, you ain't seen nothing like the fraud and abuse that is going to come with paid family and medical leave because everybody is going to max out their medical leave and their family leave. And in fact, by opening it up to family leave as opposed to just medical It's not just you actually have like a note from your doctor, which obviously can be forged. I mean, look at all these people that have uh, medical marijuana licenses or look at all the people that got notes uh, from online doctors that said they had some kind of social problem and they needed to travel with their dog, right? They had a, a therapy dog or whatever we call them. And so there was always all kinds of fraud, fake prescriptions and stuff like that so that people can qualify for whatever kind of perks that are out there. But when they have a paid family leave, and especially, you know, they don't define family as a nuclear family, husband, wife, kids, because, you know, they don't want to upset the uh, LBGQ community. So they always leave family wide open, right? It, you don't, it doesn't have to be your husband or your wife. It's just whoever your partner that you want to designate. And sometimes family extends to just cousins or nieces or nephews or even close friends, right, that you just consider to be family members can be thrown into this uh, family uh, leave. And if so if one of your close friends is having some kind of emotional problem or maybe they have some kind of an alcohol problem or a gambling addiction, whatever it is, and you feel that you need to comfort them, well, you qualify for this paid leave. And so you get to take a long extended vacation, but you still get paid. And either the government is going to force the employer to pay and then reimburse the employer, or I don't know, maybe not even reimburse the employer, or the federal government is going to pay directly these benefits. But either way, either it's going to be paid for by the employers or it's going to be paid for by the government. Whichever way it's paid, it's ultimately paid for by the average American. If not by the taxpayer, it's by every American who has dollars and has a paycheck because the value of that money is going to collapse because of all the money that is going to be printed to fund all these bogus family paid leaves and medical leaves. And remember, every adult who has a job, if they want more time off, they can negotiate that as part of their terms of their employment. I mean, that's fine. I mean, if if you want a lot of time off, you can work for less money so that you can take a vacation. And a lot of employers are willing to enter into those types of arrangements. Now, if you have a particular employer who's like, no, you can't take a, a month off or two months off, well, find another employer 
where that type of work schedule would make sense, but you can't expect to get paid more than your productivity. So if you want to accept partial payment for your productivity in terms of leisure, right, time off, vacations, then when you are working, you have to get paid less money. After all, you're delivering less labor to your employer, so your employer would have to pay you less. So you can work 12 months a year and you can get paid $5,000 a month, but you can't expect the same employer to pay you $60,000 a year if you're only going to work 10 months because then he'd be paying you $6,000 a month instead of $5,000 a month. So if you're only going to work 10 months and you're going to have two months off, then you're going to have to take a pay cut. I mean, I think you end up having to get a little less than $4,000 a month. I haven't done the exact math, but I guess about if you're going to work only 10 months during a 12-month period, taking two months worth of vacations, if your employer is paying you $4,000 a month, that may be about the same as a person who works the entire year without taking the extended vacations, and that guy gets $5,000 a month. That makes sense. But what you can't do is demand that your employer pay you the same amount of money as he was paying you to work for 12 months, but then you're only going to work for 10. How can he do that? You're telling your employer to accept about 16%, 17% fewer hours. Hey, I'm going to work 17% fewer hours. Well, okay, then I have to pay you 17% less money. I can't pay you the same amount of money if you're going to work less hours. That's like forcing me to give you a raise. And if your productivity hasn't grown to a level where that raise is justified, well, I'm not going to do it. So if the government really is going to mandate all of these benefits, then every American is going to have to take a pay cut in order for his employer to afford them. Now, if the government doesn't reimburse the employer, it basically effectively increases the minimum wage because the minimum wage is now not just $12 an hour or you know whatever it happens to be in your state, maybe 15 in some states, but the minimum wage also includes the requirement to cover the cost of the paid family or medical leave, however long that's going to be. So now you have to add those costs. And of course, the businesses are going to have to deal with the added costs of so many of their workers being absent from the workforce for extended periods of time on a regular basis. And how do they deal with that? Do they have to bring in temporary workers uh, to cover uh, the, the jobs for the people who are out taking vacations uh, masqueraded as uh, family or medical leave? Now, of course, a lot of companies will try to automate. This increases the return on labor-saving devices like machines or robotics so that you can replace your workers because you don't have to worry about your machines uh, taking uh, a paid family leave. But however this ends up being financed, it either has to reduce real wages because if the employers have to pay for it, they've got to pay you less or not pay you at all because they fire you. Or if the government pays for it, they're going to have to print a ton of money uh, to fund it. But also, it's again, it's not just what your employer has to pay you while you're not working. It's what he has to pay somebody else to do your job when you're not there. So all of these costs come in. They make all these businesses less efficient, less productive. This whole thing is going to be a disaster. And I'll be able to comment more on it after I actually see the details. Right now, I'm just kind of reading articles about what it might be. They're also talking about extending these expanded child tax credits 
uh, for a few more years. Uh, all sorts of goodies in here uh, that they want to throw in. But if you don't think that this plan is going to cost way more than they anticipate, because again, I've explained this when it comes to government spending programs, it always costs a lot more than they think. I mean, take the child care. Oh, I didn't even mention that. They want to include child care, right? They want to have the government pay for child care while the husband or wife is off to work. They don't have to pay for the child care. They want that to be provided free for the government. So another huge cost. I mean, the problem is, yeah, a lot of people that have young children are forced to work and now they have to put their kids in daycare and they can't even deduct those costs against their income. I mean, that would be, to me, a much better way of approaching the problem rather than the U.S. government providing funding, just allow working parents who have to put their kids in uh, a daycare program or have to hire somebody during the day to watch their kids while they're at work, let them deduct that cost from their income taxes. I mean, to me, that is a business expense because if I have a child at home and I got to go to work, somebody's got to watch my child. Otherwise, I can't go to work. In fact, there are a lot of families where either the husband or the wife, normally the wife, ends up not working even though they really need the money, but because she can't earn enough money, especially after taxes, uh, to cover uh, the cost of childcare. I mean, maybe there's a little bit extra, but it's not quite worth it. Uh, so some people are forced to stay at home. Now, thankfully, with the internet, a lot of these people can find ways to earn money while working from home. And in fact, one of the reasons that you might find women earning less than men is because women do have to take care of the kids or generally take care of the kids while their uh, male counterpart doesn't spend that time. So they may be working from home more often and the guys are out where they're able to earn uh, a higher living. But the real problem is that the taxes are so high that two people have to work, whereas in the past, when there were no income taxes, this wasn't a problem because the husband had a job and that's all you needed. He could support his wife and his kids uh, without his wife having to go get a job. But because taxes are so high and inflation destroyed the value of money during the 1970s, a lot of women that were able to choose to stay home no longer had that choice. They had to go get a job. But all these programs are going to cost so much more than the government believes. And they already believe it's going to cost a lot for two reasons. One is that people will adjust their behavior to qualify. For example, as I said, we're going to give out free college. Well, more people will end up going to those free colleges than they probably have budgeted into the spending. Some people that are now paying to go to college will end up going to the government colleges for free. Other people that were skipping college entirely, well, they'll end up going to college because it's free. So more people will end up utilizing the benefit than what the government is budgeting. Same thing in spades probably for the family and medical leave because they're probably looking at the number of people that they expect will have actual emergencies that would require some type of leave to stay at home. What they don't realize is that people are going to manufacture those emergencies. So maybe they think that 5 or 10% of a particular workforce will take advantage of this it's going to be more like 100%. In fact, the people that don't take advantage of it are going to feel like chumps, especially when they're being asked to carry the load 
for their coworkers who they know are taking uh, family leave and medical leave that is just BS. Uh, they're really just on the beach taking a vacation. Everybody is going to look at this as an entitlement. In fact, a lot of people are going to feel that if they don't take their fair share, they're somehow uh, the patsy. And so everybody is going to want to maximize what they collect, their personal gain uh, from these leaves. And so it's going to cost a lot more money than what, what people think. You know, my brother just experienced this firsthand with unemployment. My brother got a letter from the, the company that handles the payroll for Alliance Global Partners, which again is the broker-dealer that bought Euro-Pacific Capital from me and then changed the name to Alliance Global Partners. And now uh, Euro-Pacific Capital is a division of this broker-dealer. But my brother still works for that broker-dealer. He's not here in Puerto Rico uh, working with Euro-Pacific Asset Management. He still is working for the broker-dealer. And so he gets a letter from their payroll people that he has apparently filed for unemployment. And so somebody by the name of Andy Schiff uh, has filed for unemployment and is trying to get benefits. And so my brother called up to say, hey, I didn't get fired. I still have my job. And they're like, okay, yeah. So this is a uh, false unemployment claim. And they told my brother that unemployment fraud has skyrocketed so much that the company had to employ an extra like six or seven people, right? They had to hire more people to ferret through all the claims to figure out which ones are false and which ones are legitimate. And the guy that my brother talked to said that one of the reasons that there was so much more fraud now than there was in the past, right? Apart from the fact that there's a bigger payoff because now if you fraudulently succeed in collecting unemployment benefits to which you're not entitled, you get that extra $300 a week from the government on top of the normal benefits. So it's a much bigger prize if you get away with it. But he told my brother that when COVID started, the government actually lightened the requirement to prove your identity. So it's almost all you need is a name and a social security number. And as long as you know where that person worked, I mean, that's it. I mean, you file your claim and you're going to start getting your check to whatever PO box you claim you live at. And so there are probably a lot of people collecting multiple unemployment checks for people. I mean, that's probably one of the reasons why the unemployment claims every single week are 600, 700, 800,000. A large portion of those claims are likely fraudulent. A large portion of them are likely filed by these same individuals. But again, the fraud in the unemployment situation is not just all the people who aren't even unemployed and who are legitimately filing fraudulent claims for other people, right? Fake names or real names, but not their own name that are legitimately committing that type of fraud, you have a lot of other people who are committing unemployment fraud in that they're not actually looking for jobs. I mean, supposedly, although this, I think, just changed recently uh, because I think Biden did something about it. But normally, when you get unemployment, you're supposed to certify. You used to have to do it in person. uh, So that made it higher to lie, you know, to the face of the unemployment officer. Uh, but you can now do it online where it's a lot easier to lie, but you're supposed to certify that you were actually looking for a job that week and you couldn't find one. And it's only people who are actively searching for jobs and who can't find them that are going to get 
unemployment benefits. If you tell the unemployment officer, no, I didn't look for a job at all. I stayed at home. I watched Netflix and I was buying stuff on Amazon. I didn't look for work. In fact, even if somebody showed up at my door and offered me a job, I wouldn't even take it. In fact, I just read an article about a McDonald's or Burger King or somebody that's having such a hard time getting people to even show up for the interviews that they're paying people $50 just to sit for the job interview. But if you told the unemployment caseworker that you're not looking for work and you don't want work, they're going to say, well, okay, you're not getting unemployment. Unemployment benefits are for people who are trying to get a job and we're just helping you because you haven't been able to find one. But if you're not even looking, if you don't want a job, then you don't get the benefits, right? Well, when people lie and claim they're looking for work when they're not, that's fraud, right? And this is rampant uh, in the system with these welfare programs. So when you open up this Pandora's box of brand new welfare entitlements for free community college, free daycare for your kids, I mean, people are going to be enrolling kids in daycare that don't even exist. They'll just make up kids. Who the hell knows uh, what they're going to do? Or they'll start putting kids in daycare they probably don't even need. And then you're going to have probably daycare companies, phony ones, that'll sprout up to try to get some kind of aid. I mean, you have cottage industries that get built in around defrauding the government out of all the monies from all these programs. Uh, and then the free preschool and the free college and medical leave, family leave, all this stuff going to cost an absolute fortune. And again, it is going to help drive wages higher because employers are going to have to cover a large share of this cost. And because the government is going to make it so lucrative for so many people not to work uh, that employers are going to have to pay even higher wages to get somebody to give up the cushy job from the government, right? Which means you don't have to do anything. That's a great job. You have no responsibilities. You can sleep till noon, right? And, you know, you could be drunk every night and do whatever you want. I mean, that's a great job. And you can spend your days on the beach or uh, whatever you want to do. So it's hard for employers who actually want you to work to compete with that. So all this is going to make the U.S. economy less productive, less competitive. Inflation, prices are going through the roof. It's already started, uh, but we ain't seen nothing yet. But one of the worst parts of this is how the government wants to pay for it. Now, of course, most of it's going to come from inflation, right? Nobody's really talking about that. What they are talking about is the higher taxes on the rich, right? And supposedly that's going to pay for it. But there is no way that the U.S. government is going to get anywhere near the amount of money that it even thinks it's going to get, let alone what it actually needs to cover these costs. Because remember... The programs are going to be far more expensive than the government thinks, but the extra tax revenues from higher taxes will be a lot lower than what people think because what they're looking at is capital gains. And they're saying, hey, let's raise the capital gains tax on these millionaires from 23.8% to 43%, right? And now they assume that the same amount of capital gains that they've been able to collect at 23.8%, well, the rich are still going to have the same amount of capital gains. We're just going to be able to take 43% of those gains instead of 23%, right? Except that's not the way it's going to work because the rich will have a much greater incentive not to realize capital gains when the rates are higher. So what happens when you start taxing capital gains, all of a sudden the capital gains that you want to tax 
aren't there. Just like the analogy uh, that I described about Puerto Rico with the inventory tax, right? Puerto Rico decides they want to tax inventory. So they levy an inventory tax and they assume, okay, here's how much we're going to raise because here's how much inventory companies have been keeping every year. And so we're just going to put a tax on that inventory. And now they have an idea of what they think they're going to collect. And as soon as the tax is enacted, the inventory disappears because no one wants to pay the tax. So no one wants to carry the inventory. In fact, Ronald Reagan once said, if you want more of something, subsidize it. If you want less of something, then tax it. So if you want more unemployed people, pay people not to work. If you want less capital gains, tax it. If you want less inventory, tax it. Well, the same thing is going to happen with capital gains. The capital gains aren't going to be there. And if the capital gains aren't there, they don't get the taxes. In fact, it's possible that at a higher capital gains tax rate, you actually end up with less capital gains tax revenue because people are reluctant to realize the gain while the taxes are higher. And of course, they may hope that if they wait long enough, well, maybe the Republicans will get back in and they'll cut the rate. So they're going to hold on for that. Meanwhile, as long as the Fed is keeping interest rates at rock bottom, I mean, I look at my brokerage account, these margin rates are ridiculous. What a lot of rich people will do if they actually needed the money, they'll just borrow it against their appreciated stocks rather than selling the stocks. And therefore, they won't have to pay any tax. Of course, the other problem is if you look back over the last few years, one of the reasons that there's been such a windfall of capital gains to the government is because of the stock market bubble, right? You got these inflated stock prices and you've got everybody making capital gains. Well, what happens if the stock market crashes and a lot of those gains just go away, right? So if the gains aren't there, then there's nothing to tax. So that could happen too. So there are a lot of things that can go wrong with the government's plan to raise additional revenue through higher capital gains taxes. But the worst part I think about this plan And it doesn't make any sense to me why people are so excited about this is the plan to audit more individuals, right? The, I think it was today Biden announced or the administration announced that they want to increase the budget of the IRS by $80 billion over the next 10 years. So that's an extra $8 billion per year of IRS spending. The current budget is $12 billion a year. So you're talking about a 60% increase in the annual budget of the IRS. And all of that extra money is to harass the rich, right? Now, who are the rich people that the IRS is going to harass? Well, maybe your employer, maybe the guy or gal who runs the business uh, that you like to go to. You like to buy their products, or you like to utilize their services. So in other words, we're going to harass the entrepreneurs that produce the products that make our lives better, that provide the services that improve our lives, that create the jobs. We want to harass the shit out of these guys. (laughs) We want to send IRS agents to crawl up their behinds and audit the hell out of them. We want to tie them up in red tape and audits. We want to make sure that they have to spend more money and more time protecting themselves from the government. We want them to give more money to their lawyers, give more money to their accountants, and we want to distract their attentions away from serving the public interest to protecting their butts. That's what we want to do. 
We want to take the people who are the most contributors, right? The people who are doing all the heavy lifting in America, right? The entrepreneurs, the small business owners that keep everything going, right? Talk about killing the goose that lays the golden egg. How is this a good idea to try to focus so much scrutiny and so much attention on this small group of people that we depend on for everything that we do. I mean, everybody wants to vilify the rich, uh, but they forget without people who are running businesses, what do you have? I mean, the only way that you can provide a lot of services and goods is if you're doing a better job than, than somebody else. I mean, everybody has a choice and everybody is a consumer, but you got to consume from the producers. Somebody's got to run these businesses. Somebody's got to you know, sign the paychecks. You know, it's very easy to sign the back of a paycheck. Anybody could do that. Try signing the front of a paycheck. This is hard work, but it's important work. And not a lot of people are able to do it. And these are the people who the IRS is going to target for these audits. And so this is going to put even more pressure on business to cut back on their spending. In fact, maybe the IRS will force businesses to close. That may be the result. Hey, you owe all these extra taxes. Oh, I don't have the money. I mean, the crazy thing about it is you have the government giving out money with these PPP loans. They're just handing out money to businesses. And then they might turn around and shut down businesses because they claim you didn't pay enough tax. I mean, the government is picking winners and losers, handing money to some businesses, taking it away from others. The government needs to get out of the way. The government needs to be neutral. It's not supposed to be in there uh, micromanaging the economy. But nobody seems to be concerned that we are going to send out all these IRS agents uh, to harass uh, you know, the most productive Americans who we need in the game, who we need focused. Because again, if you think that we're in global competition, do you want American business owners to be concentrated on running the most competitive business they can? Or do you want to distract them in having to play defense against the IRS? Because if American businesses are sidetracked by IRS battles and they're forking over all kinds of money to lawyers and accountants that their competitors in other countries don't have to pay, that puts us at an increased competitive advantage. In fact, I'm sure U.S. competitors in other countries are loving the idea that the IRS is now going to harass all their American competitors to the point that they're less competitive, right? This is like shooting ourselves in the foot in a race that we were trying to win. Well, now, I mean, we already had a disadvantage and now it's going to be impossible, uh, you know, with, with, with a bullet in our foot. And in some cases, the bullet might be to the head because the IRS may actually succeed in killing some of these businesses uh, with their harassment and their taxes and regulation. But I want to finish up the podcast just to let everybody know. And again, I'm not going to get into the politics of it on this particular podcast. I may on a separate podcast that is not sponsored content. But I let everybody know I put up a podcast. Was it last week? Trial by mob injustice in America. And the original version of that podcast contained a sponsor. Well, as soon as the podcast was live, I guess my sponsor was inundated from people on the left who were saying, hey, how could you sponsor this racist? Are you guys racist? Does this podcast reflect your racist views? We're going to have to 
you know, launch a boycott uh, on your company uh, if you're going to sponsor or support this guy. So initially they asked me to just take my ad out of the podcast, which I did. So it was very easy on Shift Radio. But on YouTube, I actually had to take down the whole video and re-upload it without the sponsors. And so I re-uploaded it in its entirety. I didn't change anything that I said. All I did is remove the sponsor. But at that point, the sponsor didn't drop me. Well, I just found out yesterday that as a result of this, they're completely dropping me and they're no longer going to be sponsoring my podcast. And so I'm not going to be, you know, promoting this particular company anymore. And, you know, the interesting thing or the scary thing about this is really what that podcast was about is the concept of the presumption of innocence and the burden of proof that the government has before it can imprison an American citizen, meaning that all Americans are presumed to be innocent. And the government just can't grab an American citizen and put him in jail, right? Like, like a king, right? The whole idea behind trial by jury is if the government thinks you did something wrong, they got to prove it. And they can't just prove that you probably did something wrong. They have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you did something wrong, and they have to do it before an impartial jury of your peers. So what I really came out in support of in that podcast was fair trials, trial by jury, the presumption of innocence. And I talked about Benjamin Franklin's statement about why it's more important that we let the guilty go free if that's what we have to do to spare the innocent from suffering for crimes they didn't commit. And my point was, hey, even if somebody is guilty, I'd rather that guilty person go free than compromise our judicial integrity and, and do away uh, with the Constitution and the rule of law and trial by jury. But apparently there are a lot of Americans that don't like any of these things. Not only don't they like the idea that you're innocent until proven guilty and that the government has to prove your guilt, they don't like the idea of freedom of speech. They don't like anybody espousing these principles or criticizing what they say, so they were able to get my sponsor to drop the program completely. This really lets you know how dangerous this left-wing mob is, because this never happens in the reverse. Think about all of the podcasts that are out there and all the, the media outlets that say things that are very offensive to somebody like me, somebody who believes in individual liberty, who believes in freedom, who believes in the traditions upon which this country was founded. And there are people who are bashing those traditions all the time, advocating for socialism or all sorts of immoral, in my opinion, policies and really theft uh, you know, through gunpoint. So, but nobody on the right bothers to go through all these podcasts to find the advertisers that are advertising on left-wing podcasts and then calls up those sponsors and says, hey, are you really a socialist? Is Do you really support the opinions of this socialist? Because, you know, this is America. I believe in free market capitalism. I mean, you, I mean, do you believe in socialism? I mean, you, you're selling products. 
I mean, are, why don't you just give your products away? How dare you make a profit? You know, we're going to have to lead a boycott on your company. If you're not going to disavow yourself of this socialist, if you want to operate a business in America and you expect customers to patronize your business and you're going to earn a profit, then you better extol the virtues of capitalism and you better not associate yourself with this socialist. I mean, is this really your position? Uh, because if it is, let me know. And we're going to, I'm going to lead a nationwide boycott. We don't do that. Even though people on the left say things that are repugnant to our morality and our sense of right and wrong, we have enough respect for freedom of speech that we would never try to put pressure on advertisers to silence somebody who was saying something that we disagreed with. We would want to challenge that person. I would want you know that person to be able to speak his mind so that I can then challenge him and show how ridiculous those thoughts actually are. But that's not how the left looks at it. If somebody is saying something that they don't agree with, they want to shut it down. They want to silence uh, that opposing thought. And they are willing to apply pressure on advertisers to pull out of these sponsorships. And the companies are scared. They're scared of the mob. The mob has got these guys scared out of their wits, even though I'm sure whoever called up my sponsor threatening to boycott their product probably never used their product a day in their life. So it probably wouldn't actually cost them a customer. This is all BS. But the other problem is I'm sure whoever it was that contacted the sponsor and applied pressure for them to drop me, I'm sure the company let them know, okay, yes, we disassociated ourselves with this person. Thank you for pointing this out. Yes, no, those are not uh, our opinions. We're certainly not racist. Even though there was nothing racist at all uh, on my podcast, I'm sure I was accused by whoever um, intimidated my sponsor into uh, thinking that my content was racist. And so when the sponsor gets back to whoever protested and says, yes, uh, we've disassociated, we've pulled all our advertising, that just emboldens them to do it more because now this is a victory. And so now they're going to do more and more. And believe me, the pressure is only going to build. The more they succeed in having people canceled, the more people they're going to try to get canceled. And it's going to go beyond just a smaller, you know, social issues that they can try to couch, you know, as racist. I think the left is going to expand their reach as this campaign bears fruit and they're going to try to silence anybody who opposes anything that they believe is 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 correct. And since these companies are caving, right? They're basically establishing this precedent and once we go down this hole, it's going to be harder and harder to get out. This is really the scary thought. It's not just the economic collapse that's coming, the massive inflation, the collapse of our standard of living. That That's coming and that's scary. But what's even more scarier is the thought police and the loss of individual freedom and rights, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, trial by jury, innocent till proven guilty. And remember, once we empower the government to ignore the constitutional safeguards, we're going to have a lot more political prisoners in the United States. I always refer to my father as a political prisoner because I don't believe my father actually did anything criminal, but the government put him in jail to intimidate others. He was there for a political purpose. And what we are doing now by tolerating the type of justice we had with the Derek Chauvin case, 
what we are doing is lowering that bar. And so ultimately, it's it's going to be easier for the government to put people in prison that it regards as its enemy, not enemies of the people because they've committed murder or, or robbery or rape or something like that, but because they're out there and they're a threat to the government's agenda. They're trying to rile up some type of opposition to this socialist transformation of the United States and the people who are leading opposition to that movement, we're making it easier now to fabricate or trump up some kind of phony crime and just get some jury to rubber stamp a conviction uh, by allowing the mob to also intimidate that jury. So this is some very, very scary stuff that is happening to the United States. And I'm not going to stop talking about it. I'm just not going to talk about it on my sponsored podcast. So the next time I really get into it, maybe this is even the last time I'm going to kind of dance around the edges of the topic, Uh, but I will get into it again on the other podcast. But, But hopefully my sponsors won't just end up abandoning me anyway, even if their ads are not particularly associated with that podcast they may find that it's too difficult to even associate themselves with me because the mob is able to put so much pressure on somebody who dares, dares to hold a a view that is opposite to theirs. As a matter of fact, I think I was the first person to really publicly call out Jesse Smollett and say he was a liar. I mean, from day one, as soon as I heard that BS story, I didn't believe a word of it. And I called Smollett out on my podcast that day. And I'm sure that if the woke mob was as active back then as it was now, somebody would have canceled me. I mean, it would have been all sorts of pressure would have been put on me because obviously I would have been a racist. I mean, after all, to call Smollett a liar would have automatically made me a racist and they would have been all over trying to boycott me uh, for being so racist as to call out Smollett for lying. But the real racists were the people that simply believed Smollett because he was black. No matter how ridiculous his story actually was, I'm not a racist. I don't judge people based on the color of their skin. I judge Smollett based on the outrageous lie that he was obviously telling. The problem is, All the racists or all the people who are too afraid to be labeled racist looked past this obvious lie and simply believed the liar because the person telling the lie was of a particular race. I don't care what race you are. If you're a liar, if you're lying, I'm going to call you out.